The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everybody today. Last week, uh, some of you were here probably, I talked about renunciation as one of the central values in the Buddhist teachings. And this is, as I mentioned last week, can be quite provocative that um, when it all comes down, the essential point the Buddha is making is that there's a real happiness, but it isn't the happiness of getting what we want or not getting what we don't want. Because whenever the mind is living dependent on getting what we want or dependent on getting away from what we don't like, it's stressful. Even when we're getting what we want, it's stressful because my happiness is dependent on whatever I have now, whatever privilege or good conditions, that it remains that way and that nothing threatens it. And even weirdly, that nobody has more than me. It's interesting that like being, feeling safe, any conception we have about what I need in order to be happy is dependent on what other people have. Like I might have a lot, but if all of a sudden most people have more than what used to make me feel safe and happy and content no longer does. Because relatively speaking, they have more than me. And that doesn't feel good. So renunciation is stepping out of that rat race and realizing that's a deeper happiness. That's a more trustworthy happiness not needing to have what we crave. So we can still, you know, and we will still have desire to get rid of stuff in my life, to have stuff in my life. But there's a real freedom. It's not like, you know, some idealistic spiritual philosophical thing. We can check this out directly, immediately in our lives, really uncovering the happiness of not needing the conditions of our life to be different than they are. And that doesn't mean we're not doing stuff to make my life or the world a better place. It just means that my happiness is independent. So like maybe you're going to go do this climate strike on Friday. I don't know if you've heard of this, but that's a big deal, mostly from younger folks. And now asking uh, us older folks to get involved, you know, about climate change and the climate crisis, right? So, you know, we might um, lean in, show up, get involved with that or with any other social justice issue or just taking care of the issues in our own families or taking care of the issues in our own heart, in our own body, right? So at any level, we can show up, but we're not doing it in order to be happy. We're doing it out of the spirit of generosity or just that more pragmatic, it needs to be done. Somebody's got to do it. I'm closer than anybody else to my body, so I'll take care of my body, (laughs) you know, instead of expecting somebody else. So we can still be involved, but we're not doing it in order to be happy. Because our happiness 
that we're taking refuge in is the happiness of independence, a mind or a heart that the well-being arises through non-grasping, not through needing things to be this way or that way. I mean, and again, like I'm saying, this is not some something out there. This is something we need to immediately directly reflect on. Like, we don't often do this, but we could check in right now. I mean, here we are, in a sense, because the expectation is you stay to 8.30, you don't leave early, you don't leave during the Q&A time. So here you are stuck at Common Ground for another, you know, 15 minutes or so. And uh, it's like, it may not be great, but can the heart, can the mind be content at ease, is it possible to be happy with the conditions, the circumstances as they are? For my mind, my heart, not to need things to be different right now. See, that's not too far away. It's, I mean, I'm hoping that some of you can touch in to that place of relative contentment and ease or peace with the conditions as they actually are. Now, the world hasn't all, all of a sudden become a utopia or your situation, financial anxiety, relationship troubles, health problems, they haven't disappeared and yet it's possible to touch contentment with the conditions as they are. It's possible for a moment at a time for my heart not to need this moment to be different than it is. Now, if the thought arises, yeah, but if it's always this way, that's not okay. But see, that's a thought, right? Because the contentment, the peace, the release is always going to be one moment at a time. And the way we often lose that thread of freedom is there's a thought that arises. Yeah, but it's not okay if I'm at common ground forever or something like that, and we get caught in the thought. So we lose the reflection right, about this possibility of being at ease right now. So we really let go of the future. We don't know about the future, and we're not speculating about the future, and we've let go of the past because it's gone anyway. And we're just dealing with this question that I asked a moment ago. It's a very straightforward, pragmatic question. Can this heart, this body and mind, trust and relax and be at ease with the conditions as they actually are right now? And often, even in difficult times, often for a moment, the heart is willing to be at ease, one moment at a time. And we're just renewing that ask, that invitation, one moment at a time. We're not asking, can this heart be at ease for 10 moments? or you know, two minutes, or for the next 50 minutes. No, we're just saying right now. Okay, well, how about now? And it sounds like it would be sort of a little neurotic or incessant to keep, and now, and now, and now. <laughs> you know, but, but it just becomes the habit of the mind moment by moment to moment. Again, without the words, but just the understanding like, oh yeah, I can, it's actually quite 
useful, functional, and actually beautiful to just be at ease with the conditions in this moment. Because wisdom understands, like when we check in with this moment right now, wisdom, deep, pragmatic, commonsensical wisdom understands it's already this way. It makes no sense whatsoever for the mind to be in a resistant relationship with what is already here, wanting it to be different. right? Like my life, whatever the mood is, whatever it feels like in the body, whatever it feels like to be in the room with you all, it's already this way. So it makes so much sense for my heart to be undefended instead of like the habit of wanting it to be different or imagining how much better it would be if it were this way or how much, you know, some of us are into catastrophizing, how much worse it would be if it were this way. But it's interesting that we're not, uh, you know, we haven't been trained, we haven't developed a habit to cultivate, to sort of orient around this very available contentment and ease and intimacy with conditions. You know, so it's as one teacher said once, theoretically we're all very interested interested in peace, but when it comes right down to it, it turns out we're not that interested in peace. And ease. It's kind of an acquired taste. Another way of saying this is we're much more oriented around solving the problems our thinking mind creates than solving the issue of our life itself. It's like I think the problem is I don't have a beautiful cabin on Lake Superior that has very low property taxes and I can afford and nice neighbors, or no neighbors at all, even better, surrounded by protected land, right? Perfect place that doesn't get too much mildew, even though it's on a big lake. You know, all those sort of, you know, never going to happen demands. And then, so my life becomes more, more about solving problems that my own mind has constructed, Issues around my relationship with my partner, issues around my job, issues around my body. And so I have this very convincing story, you know, and it's not just one story, it's kind of overlapping stories. Like, if only all of this becomes the way I think it should be, well, then I'll have rights to be happy. But until then, I have rights to be unhappy. And the story will enforce it. No, no, you can't be happy, Mark. Because according to your story, you don't have what you want. So it's almost like we're reading the, the script or the like we're in some kind of movie or play. And it's like, okay, okay, this is my character. Okay, given uh, in this scene, I'm really unhappy. So then we're unhappy because we don't have what we think we need to have. As opposed to this much more pragmatic and direct approach. Okay. Here's how it is right now. It feels like this in the body. The mood, the mind's like this. The conditions of this life right now are like this. So is it, is it possible for my mind, my heart to be undefended? 
to be open, to be kind, just in a very moment, simple moment-by-moment way, is there any real peace or ease available here relating to opening to being with the conditions of this moment? See, it's so undramatic compared to my story about what the threats are and what the hope is. You know, I was saying I did a retreat up in Duluth, led a retreat up in Duluth on Saturday, and um, I shared one of my first Dharma books that I read back in 1982, I think. Um, I was backpacking in the West Coast, and I'd just gotten really interested in meditation. So every time we came out into town, I'd look for a book. And, um, and one of the books I found was uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, one of the early Tibetan teachers to come here to the West, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. Some of you might have read it. He's a pretty controversial teacher, but it's really a brilliant book. And in that book, he relates some of the beautiful stories of Milarepa, who's sort of the patron saint of Tibetan Buddhism, lived maybe in the 1300s, thereabouts. And uh, he was the student of Marpa, a very famous Tibetan teacher back in the day. And just, uh, you know, one of the reasons he's so well-loved is there's so many stories of him, like, trying to be a good practitioner and, you know, falling into one hole after another. And some of the stories are all about subjugating the demons. You know, Tibetan Buddhism is quite ornate. It's depiction of how the mind works. You know, they talk in these symbolic terms of demons and dakinis and, you know, angelic forces, beautiful wisdom forces. So he's subjugating his emotional and, you know, all the demonic tendencies of our minds to lust, to hate, to be bored, to be confused and doubt and endless mental proliferation and spinning here and there, right? And eventually he's, you know, through just pragmatic learning how to take care of his own mind, how not to be confused by his own mind's projections, which is what all all of what we have to do too. This is why we sit, you know, it's like one thing after another. We think, I hope you don't think this, but a lot of people beginning with their practice think that people who sit down, and they might on the outside look serene, but it has nothing to do with what's going on in the inside. It can be a real scene. It's almost always a real scene, right? And the people who are laughing are people who have been practicing for a while, and know, yeah, it's a scene. And, and one of the real signs that you're progressing in your practice is you're outwardly, your body's at ease, your posture is relatively steady, and you're really okay with the scene, with the wild scene of the mind. You're not confused by it. Oh yeah, this is a conditioned mind, something that's been wound up. So here in the practice setting, sitting for half an hour in the morning or whatever, you know, in a, in a way we've created the conditions, ideal conditions for unwinding to happen. So whatever's been wound up in terms of our cultural conditioning and conditioning from our families and even genetic conditioning, it has this opportunity to unwind a little or a lot. Or if we're having, you know, a not so good set, we're actually winding things up. We're sitting there 
you know, tightening, getting more and more bound up so that someday, hopefully, when the practice is going well, there will be some unwinding. So it's messy. But the practice isn't about, it's really just creating those conditions for the unwinding and just finding the safety and the wisdom that understands, yeah, it's so wonderful, it's so peaceful, it's so beautiful not to personalize, not to feel like I got to be in control, I have to judge, I have to fix. I can just let it all go. I can let it, allow it to unwind. And I don't even need to figure out how it's going to unwind. I just need to create that wise and kind space of awareness, the undisturbed, unwavering, deeply trusting space of present moment awareness. I'm not uh, an awareness that's not in a hurry, not afraid of things becoming intense or wild, not afraid of things being simple, quiet, peaceful. An awareness that really knows that it doesn't know how it's supposed to be. Or another way of saying that, you know how I know the way it's supposed to be? I check. Oh, this is the way it's supposed to be. Because part of the early wisdom in practice is a deep respect for the conditioned nature of everything, including our minds, so that the way the mind is right now, it's like, This is how this mind is supposed to be right now. How could I make a case that my mind or your mind or the world or the weather or my dog or whatever should be different than what it is right now? Like, What would the rationale be? Like God or nature or somebody got it wrong? You know, the programming code is off. It needs to be, we need to reprogram the thing here. Because the way I am, the way the world is, the way you are, my partner is, it's off. You know, that's such an arrogant thing to believe. That somehow, doesn't mean we're not sort of being complacent when we say, this is how it is. It's really a deep respect. In Buddhism, this um, respect for conditionality or the lawfulness is related to the law of karma. Right, that that we're living in this lawful, conditioned world. And it's complex, and it's interdependent, and it doesn't, and the interdependent, the complex unfolding of these causes and conditions, here's the sort of really powerful part of the Buddhist teachings on karma, it doesn't refer back to anybody. So there is this complex unfolding internally, externally. There's really no distinction. Right? There's a lot in motion. And everything that's in motion is affecting everything else that's in motion. That's the interdependence. right? And the richness, the complexity of that unfolding, it doesn't belong to God or it doesn't belong to me. There isn't somebody some magician behind the scenes sort of 
kind of created this complex unfolding. It's a very complex unfolding. It's its own thing. And even this, what's happening right here with me talking and you listening to whatever degree, this is, of course, not outside of that. So we're practicing to come into alignment, right? So that sort of more philosophical thing that I just, that picture that I just painted, it's like being peaceful in this world. And the way we practice being at ease, peaceful, right in the middle, and creative, uh, ability to respond creatively right in the middle, is we practice. And we practice in kindergarten. That's what our daily sit is, or like the sit we had tonight. We find a place in our home, preferably not so cluttered with things that trigger thought, right? Because we want to go to kindergarten where it's relatively easy to do the practice. Cat or dog is in the other room or has been trained to leave you alone. The people you live with know to leave you alone. The cell phone is completely off. No beeps, dings, right? It's really off, off. And, you know, we don't, in this style of practice, we don't use, you know, music or other sort of aids for the concentration because our primary meditation object, here's like a quiz for those who have been around, because you might want to say, well, the breath or the body, but actually what's, in the sort of simplest terms, what is the meditation object? It's reality. It's the way it is. So if we use the breath as a meditation object or the bodily sensations or some people use hearing, it's just a step toward the way it is. It's like baby step. Okay, honey, you're a beginner, which we all are, self-included, right? It's you sort of think that way. So you can just be aware of the breath coming in and then the feeling of the touching at the nostrils as the breath goes out. And that experience of touching as the air goes in and out of the nostrils, that can only happen in the present moment. So it's uh, it helps the mind, the knowing mind, connect with the thread, the flow, this conditional flow of this complex complexity of causes and conditions, right? Because everything is part of this, the totality of what we call the present moment. So by being intimate with the breath, initially like if we're aware of the in-breath or out-breath or aware of the body sitting, it's more or less an exclusive awareness with just that touching. But the more you settle in, the more you learn to relax, you'll see that even though you're really sensitive, really alert to that simple experience of touching as the air goes in the nostrils and touching, and some people feel it as a movement, you know, that rising of the abdominal wall, the falling. Some people aren't really tuning into breath. They're just, like I said, feeling the whole body sitting. It's a really nice anchor too. And then another possibility as a beginning to open to the present moment is just go with hearing. 
Now try to hear specific sounds, but just all sounds together. Because as I was about to say, we're moving in the direction of inclusive awareness, not exclusive with your meditation object and nothing else, but we're using the meditation object to open to the real object of awareness, which is the totality of the present moment. Ah, it's like this now. Can you see that like when you now, in this moment, not theoretically, but actually, when you open to the present moment, can you sense that, what I'm pointing to, that totality, that inclusive quality of the present moment? It's like, and, and it's not like, okay, how do I get to the totality? The way we get to the totality is by not excluding every, anything. So it's not like, because if you're doing that, then you, that's part of the totality. Oh yeah, that neurotic looking for the totality is part of what's happening in the present moment. So really relaxing with the present moment, you will see that awareness is inclusive by its very nature. You actually, We actually have to work to have an exclusive awareness. And when we stop that unnecessary work, Awareness, knowing becomes inclusive. But it's harder, right? Because the more inclusive awareness becomes, the more that can trigger reactivity, neurotic reactivity, like to worry or to fantasize or to compare or to judge or to want to check out because it's boring, nothing's happening, or to freak out because it's too much not what I want, I don't want to feel my knee pain, or whatever it might be. But the real skill is to keep putting it right into the center, whatever it is. Oh, that too. That too. This is the complex, wild, natural, lawful unfolding. And the question is, like, is there some freedom some ease, some deep spiritual healing in being intimate and allowing instead of neurotically trying to manage or neurotically trying to ignore. Because when you do try to manage the wildness of the present moment, notice how stressful that is. And when you do try to ignore it, notice how stressful that is. Because then you'll see there's only real, this is like another real breakthrough in practice when you realize there really isn't any other way but total exposure and intimacy. Because any attempt to control the conditional lawful and wild unfolding is what the Buddha calls dukkha, right? The deepest sense of suffering or unsatisfactoriness where basically the ego is trying to find permanent, safe ground in a way that can never happen. So the ego then will be endlessly disappointed, but because the ego is ignorant, it just tries harder to do what can't be done. And then eventually it gets exhausted and wants to give up, but that's also a neurotic activity. Because giving up is just another way of seeking solid ground. I'll be the one who's given up, right? 
Because the ego can only think in terms of solid ground. Right? The ego is always interested in a kind of safety that doesn't exist. And then we think, well, God, I'm doomed then because... But what we're doing by doing mindful awareness is we're not presuming the ego. We're actually seeing what's happening in the present moment. And eventually we see that egoic activity as just part of that complex dance of causes and conditions. It also doesn't refer back, that egoic, that neurotic, that you know tendency to personalize stuff and to get attached and have preferences. It's real as much as anything is real. It's neither good nor bad. The important thing is it doesn't refer back to anyone in the sense that we think it does. It's just conditioned mental activity. And that is powerfully liberating. When the mind, wisdom, begins to glimpse, understand that directly, immediately in experience, it's really, in a way, it's hard It's hard until the experiences start happening to even fathom what that freedom is like. It's like somebody's described it as, you know, all life long we've been carrying a 50-pound backpack, you know, a backpack with a bunch of rocks in it, so long that even though it's totally oppressive, we've gotten used to it. And then all of a sudden, it just falls off. And those first moments are like, oh my God, oh my God, this is what it can feel like to be alive. And then because of the force of habit, we immediately pick it back up, put it back on. But now we're aware we're carrying 50 pounds. It's really different. Even though we go back to being a neurotic, taking things personally, reacting according to our cultural and personal conditioning, But now we have some intuition, like it doesn't have to be this way. There's another way. I put it down once, it can be put down again. And then we get interested, like, now how how did that happen? Right? So this is what in Buddhism we call getting interested in the causes for suffering, getting interested in the causes for release, which is really the, the sort of essence of learning. Like this is what, you know, as as a learner, right, because our minds have been conditioned to learn, there's a lot of joy in learning. And this is the most relevant, most satisfying learning, to learn about how the mind works. How is it that our mind gets involved in ways that lead to contraction, to dukkha, to oppressive constriction in our heart and mind and body? How is it that that constriction releases? And that's really the the point of training. You know, we undertake this training. We come to a place like Common Ground. We study teachings like from the Buddha because we realize that we've located the cause of suffering here. This is a powerful turning point where we realize it's not your fault that I'm suffering. The cause for suffering is something my mind, my heart is doing right here in the moment. It's misunderstanding, or we could say misperceiving my experience as a human being. And when I don't see clearly, when I see according to my habits, then 
it just makes so much sense to struggle, to resist, to react, to hate, to hold, to grasp, right? And to suffer. So if the problem, as the Buddha diagnosed it, is chronic misperception of the way it is, then the resolution is to cultivate a kind of clarity, stability of awareness that will see things as they actually are so that we can live in alignment with the way things are. And that's really the heart of practice. How do I train the mind to be right in the middle, this present moment awareness, relaxed, alert, balanced, no agenda, right? except to be present, to see things as they are. That's hard, right? Because, you know, we've been trained in school and so many other places that when I bring attention to something, there's an agenda to figure it out. But see, even that agenda to figure it out is too aggressive. It's like we want to be close to the present moment, right? There's no like being on a watchtower looking down on our experience. It's like right in the middle, which means totally exposed or totally vulnerable, but no agenda. Like no agenda to get away from the pain or to get to a really peaceful, nice place. Because that agenda skews the data. Like how is the mind going to really see clearly if it's still operating from this egoic point of view of wanting to get away from the bad or toward the good, how it sees the bad, how it sees the good. So that's why we needed that. Remember I mentioned earlier how we really need that baby step where we feel relatively comfortable, relatively safe. So think about that in terms of the place you practice at home and the time you practice and that what you surround yourself with. You know, It's okay to take care of yourself, to really... Respect your practice by making a place in your home that feels like nice to sit there. I want to sit there. I'm, I'm going to put in my 30 minutes. You know, I'm going to stay put. Because it's nice to be in this place and to practice being intimate and non-reactive. And just let everything happen. And just to see what can be learned and that it's so radical as a living being, I mean, think of another animal, like we're animals, but think of another animal on this planet that would do that. Because normally when an animal has a lot of safety, it just figures, good time to catch up on my sleep, which is what meditators tend to want to do too, right? Is go to sleep because I'm safe, I'm comfortable, you know, I don't have anything pressing because I've put aside all my do's, my to-do list, or, just, or fantasize, right? With our human mind, that's what we tend to do with that space. But now we've got a bug up our butt, as the expression goes, right? We really have a sense that the cause for suffering is here. So when you sit down, remember that at the beginning, like the first minute or two, why am I doing this? Why am I training my mind? I'm pretty sure from my study and from my direct observation, I'm pretty sure that the habits of the mind, especially the more subtle habits around how the mind perceives 
reality have a very important role in suffering. And so I'm going to observe. I'm going to observe until I really see how it is that suffering contraction arises and how it is that it ceases. I'm going to become the expert on how it is that suffering arises and how it ceases. Anybody want to make an argument that the cause for suffering isn't here in our mind or heart? Because if we if we even have sort of a, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense, so we're still a little tentative, it's interesting that we haven't actually decided what would be good to kind of map it out, like how that happens. I mean, clearly, because we're bumping into suffering all the time, you know, where our heart is basically getting squeezed or contracted. And if we really felt like, no, no, this is optional. Suffering is optional. I mean, that's basically the Buddhist message, message that you could summarize it. Yeah, the Buddha says suffering is optional. And if you're interested in the option of not suffering, then you need to stabilize your present moment awareness so you can observe how it is that it arises and how it is that it ceases. And simply through deepening of understanding, the mind naturally gravitates towards non-contraction. So let me leave it here. We have about 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. Because we've been suffering beings all lifelong. So it would be nice for you to share, like in your own study, however feeble you think it's been, or however much integrity it's had for you, what have you learned about how suffering for you arises and ceases? What are the causes for suffering? The mind, the body getting tight. What are the causes for release? And of course, any questions that you have about what I've said tonight? So who'd like to start us off? You know, I'm really glad I came here tonight. Um, There's always a temptation to think that this Dharma advice applies to somebody else, you know? (laughs) Um, Usually the person that's bothering us. (laughs) Well, my my teenage daughter was really distraught about a situation, really suffering because of it. Um, You know, so it's really easy for me to try to get some advice about, you know, radical acceptance and, you know, contentment and being with the way it is and all these good things. And I'm sitting here tonight thinking, God, Kermit, you're such a hypocrite. I've been carrying this, just, um, just been tormented by this situation that's, you know, coming at me. And, um... You know, I, did, I just kind of saw that tonight. I'm here. I'm not. I'm not doing this at all with this. This thing that's, you know, it's like I'm looking at a radar screen and there's a hurricane coming and I don't have any place to go. So that's consuming my mind. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, I so I really what really came to me was all the stuff that Thich Nhat Hanh would talk about. Um, you know, just. Finding supreme contentment in your in-breath and smiling at your body and things like that, you know, just really getting into that. Um, my, that's my confession. My question is, um, Tingan Han talks about when things are getting really tough, 
the idea is to kind of uh, what is he? He calls it uh, taking refuge in your own island, basically shutting all the windows and doors. And can can you elaborate on that a little bit? Is that similar to the idea of seclusion or what? You know? Yeah, I remember I was act, actually at Plum Village. This is a long time ago. He had a three-week retreat. I don't know if people know, but Thich Nhat Hanh is a well-known Vietnamese Buddhist monk, quite famous. And he got kicked out of Vietnam because he was a peace activist, I think in like 1967 or 68. He went to the Paris peace talks and then wasn't allowed back in. Nobody liked him, the Viet Cong, the Vietnamese, South Vietnamese, the American uh, rulers. So uh, he wasn't allowed back in. And so he good for us in the West because he taught for all those decades in the West and just more recently has gone back now because he wants to die in Vietnam. He's quite old and has had a bad stroke. But when I was there a long time ago, he was negotiating with the Vietnamese officials about his return. This is probably like around 2000 or maybe a little bit later. And, uh, And he wanted to bring a bunch of books in Vietnamese to give to people. And so they were negotiating about his travel and how many books he could bring, you know. And they had initially told him, yeah, a couple hundred thousand books he could bring in. And then as they got closer to the time, because, you know, the North, the Vietnamese government officials, they're really, they have a controlled government, culture, economy. And, uh, and they were worried about religion sort of making, re-emerging as a force in Vietnam. And he has a lot of charisma. and So anyway, they went from like a couple hundred thousand to I think five or ten thousand books. And he was really upset. And so he did exactly what you said. So here you can just imagine Thich Nhat Hanh, this very peaceful, wonderful monk, and these Vietnamese government officials trying to keep the lid on things in Vietnam. And they're sort of laying down the law. You want to come back? This is all you get. And so he said he just did his breathing. He basically, like you said, Kermit, he just disappeared. All his mind knew was breathing in, breathing out for a long time. You know how awkward that would be. You know, two, three, four minutes in in an intense meeting like this to just go inward and disappear because he didn't want to react with anger. He didn't know what to, he didn't do it in order to submit. He didn't know what he was going to do. He just knew that the most appropriate response to their demand would come from being relaxed, being in the moment. He did, I think, submit to their demands. And um, I think he took two trips, maybe three, and then they stopped letting him come back. Although they did now just recently let him go back to die. Um, But anyway... There is a place, it it is important when we know we've been activated to do whatever we can do to no longer be activated because the more we practice, the more we can recognize when my mind is really under the dominion of greed or anger or delusion, you know, just as general categories for toxic elements dominating our view, our way of showing up. And when we are, even if there's just a minute thread of wisdom, that wisdom is going to say, honey, you're not good for anything. So if you can get yourself 
out of this right now and reestablish basic sanity, then perhaps you can step back into the room or step back into the conversation. But right now, you're not good for much. You know, and you see this with wise people who say, you know what, I don't think I can have this conversation right now. I'm really angry. don't want to be angry, but I am angry, and it might be better to pick this up later. That's such a wise thing for someone to do. Or, you know, or just say, I'm activated and my mind's not really balanced. And uh, <laughs> Kamala Master, somebody, a really important teacher of mine, but also somebody I teach with quite a bit now. And uh, she has a good story with she and Steve Armstrong have been creating this beautiful Dharma sanctuary up on the hill on the side of the volcano on Maui in Hawaii. And uh, they had just a beautiful place where long term practitioners uh, can do their practice. But they were negotiating the land. You know, the border was a little bit arbitrary and they were cutting down some trees and it really activated the neighbor. And, you know, Kamala was saying, you know, and the neighbor was just like really laying into Kamala, even though they were pretty sure, I mean, they were really confident they were doing stuff on their land. And uh, and Kamala said to this person something like I, I suggested, like, you know, I think I'm not going to talk. I'm really activated or I'm really angry and I, I think I should just uh, come back and have a conversation with you later. <laughs> and then the person just turns and goes, yeah, you were activated. You are. <laughs> <laughs> but it still was the right thing to do. Even if someone take, seemingly takes advantage of your wholesome retreat, it's still a wise thing to do. You don't, like that's the thing is not to take the bait because when does it ever work? Basically, you know, power meeting power. It never really, I mean, maybe there are some extreme situations where there's no other way. But we so easily decide that, oh yeah, we just need to meet power with power. And, you know, it's like the annihilation game. Who can destroy and annihilate the other side? And we see that, you know, playing out in politics now. We've gotten so divisive. It's like the only thing that's satisfying is complete annihilation of those ignorant people on the other side of whatever political spectrum, you know, your mind is involved in. Compromise? Are you kidding? You know, it's just like, it's so reprehensible, the idea that, that like, we can listen to each other or that they're even reasonable. We've demonized them. Just like we've probably been demonized by whatever the other side might be for each of us. And then we get a really destructive world where a lot of people suffer. Yeah, thanks, Kermit, for getting us going. Who'd like to speak next? Yeah, all the way over here. Why don't you go next, and then we'll go to you third. Hi, my name is Adrian. And um, just a couple things. I did, uh, I really like what you said about um, um, retreating, I guess, in, you know, and uh, reflecting. And, and there's an element in there for me that I'm just learning about, and that's trust. Trusting the process and trusting myself that I can um, uh, take the time and, and not be reactive, um, and that's not 
about being passive or letting or being a uh, doormat and yeah. that um, I'm learning to trust that I'm being that I'm uh, centering and that I'm um, and that um, out of out of a, the, the um, letting go of the you know immediate story the react you know the urge to react um, and out of the peace relative peace comes more wisdom and comes um, a more appropriate you know reaction and a reaction um, that is more loving towards myself you know and the other person yeah so the trust thing is 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 really front and center for me and the other thing I just wanted to touch lightly on is that someone said to me that uh, and it helped to think about um, to loosen up that sense of self that you know um, that static sense of self that you know we've all learned um, to embrace and um, and that's to think of self as a process yeah. that it's a process of you know it's this neurotic process of um, taking in information and deciding and you know embracing the story and you know rigidly um, you know hanging on to the story but it's when I think of myself as a process then it's easier to just sort of let go and and yeah. get into the flow yeah that's really wise beautiful Thanks so much. And it's a much better way to think of the Buddha's anatta teachings, the teachings about the impersonal nature, like you said, that it's a natural process, not that there isn't a self. The practice is about understanding what the self is, a natural process, right? That it, so when we say it doesn't refer back to anything, it doesn't mean that there isn't a self, it just means it's part of that complex play of causes and conditions. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. We're going to go next over here. Hi, I'm Wyatt. Um, I think one thing I was reflecting on in terms of how I often create suffering is maybe trying to get to healing too quickly when I'm experiencing pain. And so having some experience with spiritual tools and a practice, sometimes I, I, I think I know the right answer, yeah. and I want to get to the right answer to avoid the discomfort. And I think um, maybe Gil Fransdale said it in a, a talk, but it's that like four or five course meal then of guilt, like, oh, I, I should be more spiritual than this, this suffering, or I, I know the right answer, or, you know, empathy is the way out. Um, and I start prescribing different labels on the experience I'm having and the ways out of that suffering. Um, but my experience has been that I get to a place where I'm like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, everything. And then some, it just cracks apart or something, you know, it, it, it gets out some other way. And so um, I think I get pretty challenged. You know, if suffering's optional, then why am I suffering? Um, shouldn't I be uh, X, Y, or Z, that kind of thing? But um, I wonder if, I, I know I've heard other folks speak about it, but if you could talk a little bit about um, pain, the difference between pain and suffering and and maybe any advice you have for maybe not comfortably sitting in, in pain but just sort of giving it the space it needs sometimes. Yeah, because yeah, that's a really, that's a beautiful thing that you were talking about and, and it's nice that you ended with physical pain because it's such a powerful training ground for us because it happens so much when we're sitting. 
right? I mean, it's a big part of daily sitting, especially when you go on retreat and you're sitting more. There's just a lot of discomfort. Sometimes it's more the wiry restlessness. Sometimes it's just a simple aching of the back or the knee or whatever. And then we really can look at that question, the difference between suffering and pain. Because what is pain when the mind isn't personalizing it? When the mind isn't turning pain into a personal problem? It's throbbing, it's aching, it's twisting, it's burning, it's sensation, just as the sensation is. But there's no story about it being bad. Because that, that's optional. That part's optional. Like how the mind perceives it, how the mind relates to it, that's definitely in play. There may be very little we can do with the throbbing in the knee. And of course, you could stretch your leg out and it might go away, but why not experiment? Because there will be times when the pain isn't something you can just stretch a leg out and it will go away, like the pain of loss. Right? You can't just do something to make that pain go away. So we're really learning, like, well, what do I do with the very ordinary and inevitable pain that shows up in life? How do I relate? How can I show up for the pain of loss, the pain, you know, ordinary pain in the body? Another thing that's really useful to play with, to work with, is being cold or being too hot. And, like, notice, okay, it's hot. It's unpleasantly hot. So... If I resist it, if I hate it, it becomes intolerable. But how can I relate to the cold, to the hot, to the knee pain, to the sadness or any unpleasant emotion in a way that it becomes very workable? It's still that painful emotion or that painful knee or too hot, too cold, but it's totally workable. Like Another way we talk about it is like, I'm really okay being an imperfect, suffering, confused human being. I'm not postponing ease until I'm perfect. Perfection is a real cause for suffering. Any idea of perfection, like even the idea of sitting when I don't have any painful sensations, is a version of perfection. Oh yeah, it's so nice when my body doesn't hurt. It's so nice when the room is quiet. And we create this duality where we hate all the noises, because we're so happy when it's quiet. And we hate even ordinary sensations in the body, because we so like it when the body feels light like a feather. Because sometimes when we're sitting and the mind gets concentrated, the body feels very light, almost like it's not there. Have you had that? Some, Some of you probably have had that experience. It's a very beautiful experience. But then we can like hate the ordinary experience of the body, where there is knee pain or other kinds of pain. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing with us. And we need to leave it here. It's 8.30, so we'll just take a few seconds. Enjoy the silence. Just enough for one or two breaths together. See if it's possible to be at ease with these conditions as they are. having a kind, open connection with the moment. Thanks for coming, everyone. Really nice to be here tonight.
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.